Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, a pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Jennifer Lee. And my name is Peter Liu, and we are pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Today is February 3rd. For those who don't know, February 3rd is National Women Physicians Day, which marks the birthday of Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the first woman to receive a medical degree in the United States. Wow. What year was that? Uh, that was 1849. Wow, that's incredible. It's a long time ago. And we thought that this would be a perfect day to talk about gender bias in medicine and really celebrate how far we've come and talk about how far we need to go. We are very excited to talk to Dr. Rena Songvi. She is a pediatric neurogastroenterologist at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. She is an associate professor there and also director of the Pediatric Neurogastroenterology uh, Center. She holds several administrative roles there, including president of the medical dental staff and director of the Office of Faculty Engagement. She is also the vice chair of the Professional Development Committee for NASPGAN and also one of the co-chairs of the Diversity Special Interest Group. She is an advocate for women leaders in medicine, equity, and empathetic leadership. Really great talking to her. Looking forward to the episode. Yeah, and I think it's... Yeah, say something profound about... Uh, yeah, go for it. Say something profound about women, Peter. <laughs> um, uh, okay. <clears throat> you know, addressing these inequalities is not just the uh, burden of women, but obviously it's uh, something that men and women need to work on. So she gives us some specific guidance on how to do that. Yeah, sounds great. On to the show. On to the show. Dr. Sangvi, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bow Sounds. It's more than my pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. We are going to start with perhaps the most challenging question. So for our listeners who may not know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? So I am a pediatric neurogastroenterologist, but I am also a mother, a daughter, a wife, and I play myriad roles. But most importantly, I'm a strong believer in all human beings were created equal. And that is the mantra that drives everything that I do. Awesome. Before we get on to the real question. Wait, uh, back up. Oh. I might have to start using that for <laughs> when I describe myself. In <laughs> <sentence>. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. That was, that was really way... good. Anyway, so, sorry. Okay. Go ahead. If you could, please tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie Whatever you've been watching during this uh, or consuming during this COVID-19 pandemic, what do you recommend? So two podcasts that I highly recommend. Uh, one is the HBR Idea Cast. It's co-hosted by Alison Beard, who is an editor for the Harvard Business Review. And I really like it because she talks about a variety of workplace issues that are affecting both women and men. And then she gives practical advice on you know, what you could take away some of these are actually very counterintuitive. One of my uh, favorite episodes is uh, what managers get wrong about feedback. And I think it really challenges the notion that feedback always improves performance. Mm -hmm. And the whole uh, theory behind that podcast is if you focus on eliminating people's weaknesses and rounding them out, then you can miss out on exceptional talent that people might bring to the table. So that was very thought-provoking to me. 
The other podcast that I love listening to, especially as I'm doing my workout, is um, hosted by Kaylee Carr, and that's called Beyond the Business Suit. And she really uh, likes to shed light on the secret weapons of successful women um, and looks at hidden things that could um, you know, either help or hinder your career as a woman, and especially as a woman of color. It's very good. Love it. Oh, awesome. Love it. Moving on. Okay, I'm moving on. So as one of its chairs, you helped to create the Diversity Special Interest Group within NASPGAN. What motivated you to create this group? So, you know, it really started off in 2017 when I met one of these physicians. His name is Anupam Jena, who works at Harvard. And he came over to UT Southwestern to give grand rounds to our internal medicine group. And one of the vice chairs in internal medicine, Dr. Reimold, is a wonderful mentor, but an amazing sponsor for me. So she invited me to spend about 30 minutes with Anupam Jena. So of course, I was like, oh my God, I better look up what this man does. <laughs> and he published a lot of interesting research on gender pay inequity. And that really got me thinking. And, you know, the one thing I learned in uh, MBA that really stuck with me, one of my statistics professors told me this, I hated the statistics course, by the way, um, (laughs) was you never know what you don't know till you now know you know it. Um, And so when I looked at what Anupam uh, sort of writes about, I said, there's no way that in pediatrics, especially in pediatric GI, there cannot be a pay gap. Come on, we're all mostly women. We're a wonderful group of collegial people. So I leaned over to my next sort of uh, office and I asked one of my phenomenal male pediatric colleagues, hey, how much do you make? We're about the same sort of level. And the answer shocked me. Firstly, I was shocked that he was so open about how much he made. But secondly, I was shocked that there still was a pay inequity, even though in my mind, we were both doing kind of similar work. And so that really got me thinking about, well, what else is out there? Um, And as I started looking into it, it's not just a gender inequity, but there's also inequities amongst minorities, amongst people who have a different sexual orientation than what is most common. So I spoke with um, Karen Murray, who was, I think, president-elect at that time, if I'm not wrong. And she was a huge supporter of this. I really give a lot of kudos to Karen Murray. And she and I sort of talked a little bit. She had me write up a proposal. And my whole point was, again, going back to my mantra, all human beings are created equal. And I wanted to have NASP again provide that equal opportunity to everybody irrespective of your gender, race, or sexual belief or religious belief. And that's really the mission of the the diversity SIG, is to have career opportunities, but also look at issues that affect people of different genders, diversities, uh, backgrounds, and sexual preferences, and see how NASPGAN can support their career development and bring them to be the next leaders of NASPGAN. We also love Karen Murray on Bow Sounds. <laughs> she was our second episode. Second guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, second, second guest. guest. Moving on to the next question. So be- before we talk about pediatric GI more specifically, so in general, women in academic medicine face challenges that men do not face in many aspects of our profession. 
What would be the main challenges you feel like women face that men do not? One of the main challenges that women face that men do not, whether it's pediatric, GI, pediatrics, or any field of medicine, is that we give birth. And that's not to say that there aren't a lot of awesome men who help mm -hmm. out post-delivery and pre-delivery, but the actual act of giving birth to another human being um, has been given to women. And I think that takes a huge toll on the woman, both emotionally, but also physically. In most places, and I'll tell you in Texas, there is really no such concept of maternity leave. When you're a state employee, for example, of Texas, what they would ask you to do is take all your sick leave and you can apply for short-term disability, which in itself is, I think, has such a negative connotation because right. being a mom is not a disability. And I do have some really wonderful male leaders who have said, and again, this goes back to your implicit bias, but who have said, well, this young woman is super talented. I'm worried, though, that she's of childbearing age. And what if she has a child right in the middle of an important project? Um, I think I'm going to go with a more experienced either male or woman who is done with the childbearing years. Uh, so I think that's the number one challenge that women face. There are other challenges which include the societal and cultural role that women will be the main caretakers of the child. Again, I have a lot of young male colleagues who are phenomenal uh, young dads. But, you know, when your child is ill, what's the first thing they say? Mama. I want mama. <laughs> right. And so there you are. It's funny. I actually had surgery last week and my husband has been doing a phenomenal job of just picking up around the house and helping to have our family continue to function. And we actually had to sit down with my two toddlers and ask them more times than I can count that if they need something, please go to daddy before they go to mommy. Because even though I cannot move my hand, even though I was laying in bed recovering post-op, if they needed something, they would climb two flights of stairs to come to the bedroom where the door was closed and ask mommy before they would ask daddy who was standing right there. And it's not that he didn't want to help. It's just that's what they did. <laughs> I, I am so sorry to hear about your surgery, Jen. Hopefully you're feeling better. But right before we started this podcast, I gave my son an essay. He's 14. He had to write an essay for school. So I told him, write it and show dad at least the first draft. And he promptly walked into the room and said, mom, here's my first draft. <laughs> um, and so I get what you're saying. It's, it's, it's human nature. I love it. But also, I love it. But still. <laughs> um, we also have this issue with a leaky pipeline. There are a lot of women that are entering into medicine, and you find that we have a huge issue with being able to retain them. Maybe it's part of this dual responsibility. Maybe it is having the childbearing years. I also think, though, that the networking effect plays a big role. When the male leaders are currently networking, they're looking around and seeing other male leaders. So when they're planning their next successor, they're looking the, around the room and unconsciously looking for a male that resembles them. And so you're now perpetuating what I call, uh, call the networking effect. And so women, especially in, in fields like pediatrics, OBGYN, which are very heavy in women, uh, you'll find that men who go into this field 
take what I call the glass escalator. So we've all heard about the glass ceiling, but what I call the glass escalator is men who go into a women heavy field, get a fast pass up to leadership because they are quote the minority in there. And something is just not adding up about that. Um, can you tell us more about like how has COVID-19 affect some of these inequalities? So we did uh, a survey at our institution and we looked exactly at this. How has COVID-19 affected men versus women? And what we found, again, and hopefully these will be published soon, but what we found is that women were three times more likely now to want to go part-time or to completely leave a career in medicine than men were, especially if the woman had children who were under the age of 16, the women who were already part-time. And, you know, our survey found that there are more women who are part-time than men. The part-timers now want to actually quit a career in medicine because finding childcare, finding safe, reliable childcare is so incredibly difficult. We also find that the women tend to have a lot more worries about the finances. So yes, the men are certainly pulling their weight, but I think the women maybe are overthinking it, uh, but we tend to worry a whole lot about finances. How am I gonna make ends meet? What happens if I don't make my bonus? What happens if I do get a salary cut? And I think that's leading to a greater level of burnout amongst the women. And the last thing, which was very interesting that I found, was that a lot of women had a hard time saying no, which means if you had a colleague who was out with COVID and you were asked to pick up a shift, women were more likely to pick up the shift. And I don't think it's because men are lazy or men didn't want to take the shift. I just think women have this inherent inability to say, no, I have a lot on my plate. I cannot do that because we are pleasers. Most women are pleasers. And I think that's adding to their level of burnout. So um, Dr. Tomer gave an excellent talk during our recent annual meeting on women in pediatric GI and discussed the findings of the Naspigan Women Task Force published in 2014. Can you talk a little more about these issues? Yeah, I think these are really important issues. And Dr. Tomer, who is the current chair of the Professional Development Committee, has been a strong ally uh, for making sure that women's voices are heard. She has been phenomenal and has done a lot of work. In fact, we're working on a paper together that will really talk about the current state of diversity in pediatric GI. So stay tuned for that. If you look at the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges report from December 31, 2018, so almost uh, about two years old now, you'll find that in pediatrics, women are making 83 cents on the dollar for men. So in pediatric GI, women are making 85 cents on the dollar as compared to what men are making. And this is an academic medical institutions. Um, it's also interesting that they looked at how many women were full professors. So while you had 26% of men who were full professors in academic pediatric institutions, only 11% of women were full professors. Compare that to the entering uh, pipeline, you have 54% of women who are assistant professors, not as many men. So if you look at mentoring, a lot of men will say, yeah, I get mentoring, I'm good, I don't need mentoring, I'm pretty good with mentoring. Women, will pretty uniformly say, even within the same institution, 
I don't get mentoring. And I think the big difference is the expectation that men and women have from a mentor-mentee relationship is a little bit different. Women want really a bi-directional relationship in mentoring, which is I can teach you something, you teach me something. And those kind of mentors who are willing to accept that bi-directional relationship are very few and far between. The third part also is women just don't need mentors. They need sponsors. And that part has really been lacking, I think, so far, at least in pediatric GI. So I really think that there are a lot of issues that we need to take in play. Uh, again, networking is another thing. I'm working with uh, Dr. Lightdale, who is our president-elect, to come up with um, a really succinct way in which the uh, Professional Development Committee can help networking of young women with the senior leaders. And my hope is that that way, when the senior leaders are planning succession planning for committees or for other NASPGAN positions, they'll see the young women who are interested in leadership position. And it's a different pool than what they're being exposed to um, in their current leadership positions. So I really think that the missing ingredient in bringing women um, you know, to par with men is the men. I think the men feel we're good, and I would really encourage all of our phenomenal pediatric GI male colleagues to take a second, walk in the skin of a woman, and see how it would be. Try and give feedback the way she would want to hear it, not just, you are doing an awesome job, or, hey, I think you're a little bit too harsh. Give specific feedback. Number two, mentor a woman with a bi-directional relationship. Number three, sponsor a woman. And I really think that that's when we'll be able to get uh, over a lot of these issues that Dr. Tomer has so beautifully researched about. Yeah, I think that's great advice because I feel like as a male, obviously I have no experience with any of the things that we're talking about, except maybe through my wife who, you know, deals with these on a regular basis in her, in her field. But um, I think it's so helpful to have like, practical tips now that obviously I'm not like a senior leader in anything, but, uh, you know, like I do work with students and work with uh, residents and fellows. And so I think every male GI, pediatric GI physician has some way of trying to make a difference. Um, so you mentioned that in pediatrics, you know, so the majority of entering trainees are now women. Um, and in Dr. Tomer's talk, she mentioned that, um, you know, 66% of pediatric GI fellows are women. And now uh, almost half, so 49% of NASPGAN members are women. That's encouraging. But like you had mentioned, that doesn't really tell us the whole picture, right? No, you're absolutely right. It doesn't tell us the whole picture. And again, I think we've got to make a conscious effort as a society to retain these women who are entering into our field and to promote them into leadership positions. Because I think hearing a different point of view is only going to get us from good, we are a good society, to great. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing, Peter, I wanted to bring up is I know you mentioned I'm a young male leader. I don't have leader or I'm a young male physician. I don't have leadership <laughs> positions. And I'll tell you that there's a lot of power in what I call peer mentorship and peer sponsorship. So even if you are a starting level male pediatric GI, 
go find a peer, go find uh, a woman who's at the same level at you and say, hey, let's talk. Let's talk about what I'm doing in my career. What are you doing in your career? And give them this reciprocal peer mentorship. And you'll be surprised at two things. You'll be surprised at A, how shocked the woman is that a male, her um, sort of level is interested in mentoring and interested in her career. You'll also be probably surprised at what you learn from her. And so I think it helps both of you. And I feel like that's when you'll say, if you get invited for a talk, Peter, you might say, look, I'm too busy, but <laughs> Dr. Maybe Lee is yeah. free and she does a phenomenal job. Let me suggest her name. So yeah. sponsorship does not have to be from a senior level. It can be from your peers. Yeah, that's a great point. By the way, for the listeners, Dr. Lee is a great speaker. I've heard many of her talks, and uh, yeah. she would be excellent. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for that peer-to-peer -peer sponsorship. So I did want to talk a little bit about pajama time with the electronic health record, which is the time outside of scheduled work hours that people will look and log into their electronic health record. With a lot of women, we'll see, and this is what I do myself, is I will rush to get home and then I will log back on at 9 p.m. at night and work through the night to finish after my children have gone to bed. Talking about that home life is just really important. I absolutely agree. And, you know, a lot of people talk about work-life balance, and I disagree with that term. I think your work is your life. Um, and I think I talk about work-life integration. And one of the things that I learned, again, from uh, Eileen Jencott, who came to us as to give grand rounds from Boston, was that you have to set limits on meeting times. So I am currently the president-elect of our uh, medical dental staff at the hospital. Most of my meetings are 7 to 8 a.m. or 5 to 7 p.m. Those are the times when my children need me the most. And I'm trying to do my part with sponsoring. So I look at women who I think are amazing leaders and I'll say, hey, why don't you run to be the next president? Stand up for elections. And the most common response I give is, nah, those times won't work for me because I've got to be with the kids. I've got to cook dinner, make breakfast, get them ready for school. Not that my husband won't do it. It's just that I need to be there for the kids. And that really got me thinking. And when Dr. Jencott mentioned it, why can this not happen during the times of office hours? Or why is it not okay then to have a meeting at 9 p.m. when the kids are in bed? Why are we not able to have our meetings around the times when women would like it? Or furthermore, why is it not okay for me to have my son on my lap when I'm giving, uh, I guess, my president uh, of the medical dental staff speech, or why could I not be making breakfast in the background? Now, I certainly think the pandemic has been a positive influence in this, where with Zoom, you can turn your video off and be doing a lot of things in the background. But I also would offer that it makes women feel like they have to multitask in order to keep up. We're pedaling extra fast. We're like ducks. We're pedaling like crazy below the surface. So I think there's a whole lot to be said about that, Jen. I think that's a really important comment that we should expand upon a little bit. Um, I'm a little bit uncomfortable talking about some of the experiences that I've had, which I don't think is uncommon with young women who are starting their careers. When we were even talking about wanting to get pregnant, that being almost a discussion that my husband and I felt my mentors were saying we should not be having openly. I do also think that there is this truth in microaggressions in the workplace. 
I'm not sure if you're aware of this initiative. It's called BRIM, Bias Reduction in Internal Medicine. It started at the University of Wisconsin. And what they really do is they look at microaggressions, but also unconscious biases that faculty could have in internal medicine. And they actually, A, tell you about them. So understanding your biases is the number one step to getting over it. But B, they actually give you really good tips, ideas of what you could do to get over your unconscious bias, but also what you could do if you were a bystander. So we have written that up um, with permission from them. And there's something called Brim Pediatrics. And I'm working closely with a group in uh, Seattle as well, with the psychiatry group in Seattle. And there is Brim Pediatrics that we are bringing to UT Southwestern. And it's exactly that. What are things that you would say that you didn't mean, but that come across as a microaggression for a woman? So I've had male colleagues and I love group, my group. I love the Naspagan group I work with immensely. But I've had male colleagues tell me, are you sure you want to do this precedent role? It's a lot of evening meetings. I mean, are you sure you're okay doing that? And that comes across to me as a microaggression. Clearly did not mean that. I've had patients tell me, where are you from? Well, I'm from Dallas. No, where are you really from? Uh, well, I'm really from Dallas. No, where are you from? Right. And so I think what they're getting at is where is your accent from? Classic. And it yeah. comes across to me as if, uh, I, I don't trust you. You're not welcome. And maybe that's not their intention, but being aware of how you phrase something can really make a big difference. So I really encourage everybody and hopefully Brim Pediatrics um, will make it available to a lot of other um, sort of institutions. I took a small watered down version of this unconscious bias training uh, and made it available to our fellowship program directors. So what we did is in June, this is before they would even have started looking at their fellowship applicants through Christine Lee, who is the chair of the fellowship directors committee. We had all the fellowship directors get access to the AAMC unconscious bias training module. And really my goal with that was to say, before you even look at an application, be aware of your unconscious bias with the hope that they will then interview applicants that are more diverse than what they've done before, with the hope that these unconscious biases don't play a role or play less of a role in recruiting our next class of pediatric GI folks. So I think there's a lot that can be done. I've also encouraged my colleagues and I encouraged all, I'm encouraging all the listeners on this podcast. Harvard has a free implicit bias training. It's called implicit harvard.edu and you can take questionnaires on what is your bias towards skin color what's your bias towards age what's your bias towards gender um, and I'll, I'll be really candid and say I tried to game the responses because I thought I knew what the correct response is and it's it's a pretty it's a pretty good system I was very um, hard pressed to game it and I thought when the results came back they were pretty accurate. Uh, and it was hard for me to admit it to myself, but they were pretty accurate. What advice do you have for women or anyone who might be experiencing these microaggressions in real time? 
You know, I think that's a great question. And I'll be honest, I struggled with this a whole lot. I think women may be doing this more than men, but you go home and you mull about it and you feel sad and you kind of get eventually go through those whole phases of anger, depression, grieving, all of that stuff. And then I read a quote by actually Hillary Clinton, who said, you're always going to get criticism. You what you need to do is take a deep breath. Think about that microaggression and think about it in terms of could I then put a positive spin on that person's mindset? You don't know what they were thinking, but it always helps to put a positive mindset. Well, maybe the colleague who told me, are you sure you want to do this president role as a five o'clock meeting was really more worried about my mental health. And I think it sort of softens that microaggression. Number two, if you think there is truth in that microaggression, be honest to yourself about it and work on it. But if you think that that's really not something that you believe in or there's no truth in it, let it roll off your back. Move on. Don't keep it in you. Clearly, I've still kept this in me because I'm still talking about it. So it's a work in progress. Lastly is, I think as a man or a woman, if you are a witness to a microaggression, stand up for it. So let's say, uh, Jennifer, if you were in the room when this colleague said that to me, you could have said, well, I think she would do a wonderful job, whether it's a five o'clock meeting or a 12 o'clock meeting, stand up. I think supporting somebody sort of even indirectly is worth a million words. And I think there are times when you can have recurrent microaggressions from the same person, for example. I did try to do all of the things that you mentioned, but there are some times when you just really feel that you need to say something. And I went and I had a meeting with the person and I had a direct conversation. And again, it was not meaning to come off in that way, but that was really empowering for me. Um, and so I would definitely encourage if people are feeling that they're having this microaggression on a recurrent basis to talk to somebody that you trust, and maybe even confront the person and have a direct conversation. Absolutely. And I think that's really important. I struggled with this, Jen, for a very long time. Uh, because my thought is that that other person would think that I was, you know, put in blank, whatever word that women are called when they're aggressive. Um, and then I did two things. Number one, I did exactly what you did, Jennifer, where you speak to somebody who you trust, and you find a way to give the message without being nasty. So give your message with kindness. Be true to yourself. Number two, I have a little plaque on my um, desk that I keep uh, to remind me that I'm often called X name. And it's a role I take real seriously because there are other people that depend on me. Um, and so I think that's important to speak up to somebody. But remember, don't forget your kindness. Don't forget who you are. Uh, but sometimes just speaking up, like Jennifer said, will help people realize that what they did not mean to say was coming across in the wrong way. That's great. Yeah, it was pretty awkward for me. But <laughs> it was an awkward conversation. But I'm glad I did it because I think that now I would feel more empowered to do that and to stand up for somebody than I would have before. So when I was a young faculty, like maybe my first year, I showed up for the meeting and I started getting, I think, more and more emotional. Now my department chair was at this meeting. So I started crying. I was bawling, like ugly crying in the meeting. And I was maybe one of two women out of 12 other men in that room. So I left the meeting. Um, and for the next 10 years, Jennifer and Peter, 10 years, I replayed that scenario in my head over and over and over again. 
And to be really honest, it sort of got blown out of proportion in my head. So every time I saw the department chair, in my head, I was like, oh my God, he's probably thinking here is that faculty who cried in front of me. She has no leadership ability. So what I did is when I did my MBA, I was given a professional coach. And that coach was probably the one thing that changed my life because my coach said, you know what the hurdle to your leadership aspirations are. You've got to go and talk with this person and set the record straight. And that was a very difficult thing for me to do. Uh, I didn't sleep that whole night. And then when I walked into the room, I said, sir, you know what I'm here to talk with you about. And he was like, I have no idea. I said, well, you remember 10 years ago, I cried in the meeting. And his response to me was, did you? I had no idea. I can't even recall that. So for 10 years, this thing in my head had grown to be a big monster. And essentially what I said in the meeting is, well, yes, I did. I'm not here to make excuses. But I'm here to tell you I am ready for leadership positions and I lead with empathy. And I think that really opened doors for me. So going back to what Jennifer said is you want to face your critics directly. Go talk with them. But don't wait 10 years like I waited because the monster becomes bigger in your head than it actually is in somebody else's head. Okay, so you've talked a lot about like practical advice for women and men in medicine, pediatric GI, on how we can try to make some change. But um, how can we address these gender disparities in our own community, in our pediatric GI community, um, like within NASBEGAN? Um, what are things we can do as individuals in this organization to help? You know, that's a great question, Peter. I think number one, within your own institution, what you absolutely can do is start doing compensation equity analysis. And I think make those analysis public, no matter what the results are, even if there is a compensation gap, and then invite people to give thoughtful ideas on what could be the causes of the gap and how you narrow it. And don't just look at gender, also look at uh, different diversity and ethnicities. Number two, you also want to do an analysis and NASPAGAN through the Professional Development Committee has started this. Look at what your leadership structure looks like. Would it look at what your entry level structure looks like and then make a thoughtful commitment to say in five years, we'd like X percent diversity in terms of gender, race, whatever have you. Um, I And I think that's the number one step. And NASPAGAN has already started that with this initial analysis that we've done. The number two step, though, is you might want to consider what JP Morgan Chase did. They actually did reverse mentoring. So what they said is, okay, you senior, uh, senior level uh, person, and I'm just going to pick on Karen Murray because she's awesome. Karen Murray, I'm going to partner you with Jennifer Lee, and Jennifer Lee is going to be your mentor. Okay, that sounds crazy, right? right? Jennifer is <laughs> going to be like, what am I going to teach Karen Murray? But you essentially start a conversation and it turns out then that Karen will actually be mentoring you, although that relationship has not been named as such and she'll learn from you. And Karen will then start sponsoring you, et cetera. But that's how you get um, ahead of the curve. And lastly is, I really hope through NASPAGAN, we can provide this implicit bias training to everybody. We all have biases. There's nothing wrong with it. I just think recognizing those and especially recognizing those at times when we're hiring fellows, hiring attendings, looking for your next program successor is very important 
to keep them in check and to improve diversity. I would love that. So Karen, if you're listening. Um, and then lastly, if people want to get a, get get in touch with me as we're doing the BRIM and pediatric uh, stuff, I'm more than happy to talk to people. I mentor people from across the U.S. and by no means am I a leader, but I simply share my experiences. Um, and I also have people who I'm mentoring from Asia, from India, from Brazil. So I'm happy to talk to anybody who wants to talk with me. So I'd like to ask this question kind of on behalf of other young women who are starting their careers. Um, and, and if you don't feel comfortable answering, we can definitely cut this out. But as we're talking a lot about gender bias and the role that deciding to have a family may play in your career advancement, what advice do you give to young women if they come to you talking about timing regarding starting their family? You know, what I tell women is, um, and that, that's a wonderful question, Jennifer, what I tell women is you do have a biological clock. So you have to take your family as number one. The last thing I want or any woman wants at their funeral is for the kids to say, well, she might have been a wonderful mom, but I don't know. She spent a lot of time at work, right? So family always comes first. The second piece of advice that I give them is it's okay in your career to take a break. You don't always have to be doing everything at the same time. So when I had my kids, I put my leadership aspirations on a back burner till my kids were teenagers and kind of independent, although we've already spoken about how teenagers don't have a frontal lobe. But um, So I think it's okay at different phases of your career to have different priorities, as long as you sort of keep your foot in the door. Do not completely, even if you go part-time or you, you sort of stop working for a little bit, make sure you keep your connections. Make sure people are always aware that you're willing and able to do leadership positions when you're ready. You do it on your timeline. The right opportunity will come to you. You don't always have to go seeking and knocking at the door always. You make sure you show people how awesome you are. The question is not who is going to let me. It's who's going to stop me. Yeah, that's great. I feel like I can't contribute too much. Today, we've talked about several ways that men can try to make it a little bit easier and uh, also help support, you know, over half of our profession who are going to be who are going to be women. I think you're right, Peter. The missing ingredient is the men. Mm-hmm. We need the men to help the women get to equality. Right. Uh, we're not trying to swing the pendulum too far. I would love for the pendulum to be spot on in the middle. And then even you as a young father to be, you will have times when there will be differing priorities, but when in doubt, family comes first. Yeah. Especially since uh, my wife is uh, way more busy than I am. Well, we'll see. Who knows what will (laughs) happen. Anyways. You're going to be excellent. She'll be excellent. Ah, We'll see. Okay. So in closing, we've been asking this to all of our uh, guests and and really it's been just so lovely speaking with you. And um, I wonder if you could just share what is the best advice that you have ever received in your career thus far? And now that you have been in your career for a while, what advice do you have for trainees and junior faculty? Just breathe and sleep over it. Um, And that has helped me uh, in many different ways. Number one, um, when I want to send an angry email, just breathe and sleep over it has helped. Number two, when I want to assume somebody's intentions were bad, just breathe and sleep over it. 
number three, when I have applied and failed, which I have at multiple leadership positions, just breathe and sleep over it helps me realize that it's not really a door that's closing. It's probably a different door that's meant for me. And then just breathe and sleep over it. It's also great when my child woke me up at 3 a.m. to ask me if I was actually asleep. I just (laughs) was breathing and sleeping over it. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you so much again. I think it was really awesome to talk to you about these topics. And I know this will be super valuable for our listeners and our community to, uh, to hear about. So once again, thank you so much. Thank you both, Peter and Jennifer. I love what you're doing. Wonderful job. And again, I'm going to throw in a pitch for both Peter and Jennifer. Invite them as Grand Round speakers to your next uh, Grand Round. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I really, really love talking to Dr. Songvi. And I hope that we can have a drink in person at Aspigan 2021 in Nashville. Yep. We'll all be vaccinated and this thing will definitely be over. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there is a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspgha.n.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Support each other, especially support your women. Yep. (laughs) Until next time. (laughs) Bye-bye.